The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, get your geek on and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 416 with guest Ryan Wilhite, recorded live Monday, January 26, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who admits his computer did beat him in chess... But it was no match for him at Kung Fu. Carl Franklin! Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here on the East Coast of the United States of America, New London, Connecticut, to be exact. And my co-host, my partner in crime, Richard Campbell. Yes, sir. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. It is freezing cold in Vancouver, but I'm not complaining. It's cold here, but at least it's not icy anymore. The, we had a little bit of melt, so you know we can drive safely from one place to another. And the Prius is actually doing pretty good in the snow now. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. Those itty little wheels of yours. You know, I, I said on the show a long time ago, the thing really sucks in the snow, but then I looked at the tires and there was metal showing through. Yeah, that's, so I blame you. Maybe that's the problem. So I've got some <laughs> new tires and man, it's fine. Yeah, it does fine. That's funny. Not complaining as much as I used to. Although, the best place to own a hybrid car is in Arizona, or some place that's flat and hot, because there's two things it doesn't like. It doesn't like cold, you get worse mileage when it's cold, and it doesn't like hills. Right. Better mileage when it's flat. Well, anyway, let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, sir, what do you got for me? At the request of today's guests, I'm covering the DB Connection class, which is in the system.data.common.namespace. Ah, yes. System Data Common is where all the base classes and interfaces are for um, the things that uh, for the data model provider in ADO.net. So the the DB command, 
is the base class for a for a SQL command and an ODBC command, the command builder, the connection, the the data adapter, the data reader, all of those things. If you have your own, let's say you have your own database that doesn't exist and nobody's ever written any code for, you can implement those interfaces and create, you know, through the provider model, you can create your own data adapters and table adapters and all that great stuff that comes with ADO.net. If you want to know where all that stuff is, it's in system.data.com. And and, uh, as Brian will point out soon, this is really, you know, the the legacy of Microsoft is embracing all of these different data formats, as many formats as possible. So uh, this is is our ODBC, if you will, you know, our our common uh, classes for accessing data on a wide variety of platforms. So, Richard, you got an email for us? I have a quick one, and uh, it's a little ESL. English as a second language? Because it is actually originates from Karachi, Pakistan. Ah. A place I've been. Not, a, not an easy place to get to, but, uh, you know, there's software developers there, too. Let me read it to you. Hi, both of you. I hope you guys read my email. I'm starting to believe that you don't. Oh, man. That's cold shot. Well, there you go, Salman. And now we're reading it, so what can you do? I'm not going to waste any time by saying that .NET rocks rocks, because it does rock. Today, I listened to your show, Catching Up with Scott Bellware. And I think that Scott is right that a lot of software companies are madly looking towards Microsoft for advice. I am saying this because I myself feel like I am a monkey. Oh, man. Dude, what can I say? Don't have anything to say to that. I'm sorry. Think for yourself. Yeah. I think that's really what Scott was trying to say there was you got to think for yourself. Right. And uh, and I think Microsoft presumes that you do. So dig in and take care. Good advice. Uh, and he closes out his email with, finally, this show was really great for two reasons. The first is because it's proof that .NET Rocks is really a sole production of Franklin's .NET. And that it gives light to companies to not blindly or madly follow Microsoft, but instead look for the best options. The only agenda we have is to give everyone a voice. There you go. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Salman Aziz from Karachi, Pakistan. Yeah, thanks very much, Salman. And uh, you got a .NET Rocks mug headed your way. Now we've got to figure out how to get a .NET Rocks mug to Pakistan. That should be fun. That should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you could bring it the next time you chaunt over there to speak. Yeah, there hasn't been a conference there in a couple of years. Uh, things are a bit unstable at the moment. I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying. You know, back, back last when I was last there, which I think was 2006, it was uh, a little calmer. And even then, the the Microsoft folks were pretty jumpy about Westerners being at the conference. It was just Steve and I. Uh, not that we were, not that we listened. <laughs> we right. still were prone to running out of the hotel, hopping into cabs, and going and seeing things in Karachi, which was an adventure to be sure. That's the first time I've ever seen a, a camel run a light. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in a taxi with Steve and, and, and the light's about to change and this camel with this huge three-story cart behind it and this guy standing on the top of him just whacking the snot out of the camel and I'm saying, Steve, I think that camel's going to run the light. Dude, that camel's <laughs> running the light. Right there. That guy's running the light. Who gets the ticket? ticket? Yeah, really. Who gets the ticket? Anyway, that's, yeah. I've seen some weird things on the roads before but the only time I've seen a camel run a street light, it was in Karachi. <laughs> now I have to go. Uh, Richard, our guest today is Brian Wilhite. Brian is a blogger, a longtime listener of .NET Rocks, and uh, a developer. 
And um, he's got some good ideas on his blog, The Raz X Context, which you can find at kintaspace.com. That's K-I-N-T space.com slash R-A-S-X log. Welcome, Brian. Hello. How are you? Well, you know, doing it, hanging in there. You're doing it. You're in the trenches, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, um, uh, I was just looking here at uh, the uh, invariant provider name for the DV provider factories. Yeah, and, uh, that's in system uh, data common. Yeah, yeah, see, that's the one. See, once, once you know there's a, there's a invariant pro- provider name yeah. for that, uh, you know, for the .NET framework, then you could connect to some data, and that's very important. In, in the W-2 labor world, the IT world with a lot of legacy, a lot of brownfield. Yeah. And you've got to um, find a way to connect to data. Uh, have, you had any, have you had the, um, the necessity to build your own uh, data adapters and your own data model based on these? Yeah, I came out, uh, I actually put it up on CodePlex, but it's, it's really personal uh, for my personal use. But uh, I thought I would share it just to get some feedback, maybe, maybe, because there's a lot of stuff out there, I know. But uh, I call it the, uh, the Songhai Data Access Framework um, based on uh, my, my consultant days. My company uh, was called Songhai System. Yeah. Uh, I still use it now for other stuff, uh, but, uh, but I have it out there, and... Um, Essentially, uh, my 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 style is to have a bunch of static helpers as much as possible. So when you're trying to do look at uh, the pie slices and code coverage mm-hmm. of a project, um, I would say 80% of it would would be the static helper classes, and uh, a lot of them are in system.data.common. And uh, my uh, my approach was to be as as so as generic and legacy focused as possible. So uh, the system gets that you know building a lot of helpers, a lot of static helpers in that namespace, geared to what I I need to do. Um, seems to have been the best way to go. So I'm looking at it on Codeplex. What are some of the helpers that you you have written in here? Give us an example. Well, in the, uh, let's see, so in the common, uh, I have um, my own uh, namespace prefix common. Mm-hmm. Under, under there is common DBMS, common parameter, common reader, and common scalar. So common DBMS is saying I'm going to connect to a database management system that implements System that you know that that implements system that types in system that data dot common. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> that's the the bottom of the of the stack, and uh, so I use a get adapter. That's a static method that uh, uses the the get factory method on uh, DB provider factories. To create uh, a data a, a data adapter, okay. That uh, I think that's a interface. Uh, so these are basically functions and methods that you can 
use with any of the providers that, that are built in that does some of that wraparound code that you're always doing, exception handling and testing to see whether the connection is open before uh, before accessing a command and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So a, a, a beginner would immediately go to DB connection. Yeah. And then start to work from there. But they might run into some hard coding unless they go even deeper and go down to the uh, to the to the DB data provider level mm. and uh, make that uh, make that as as generic as possible. Yeah. And uh, uh, also, so for for example, um, and then you go the other way above the stack. Uh, there are these static. I have static overloads for do command, mm. where I take a uh, DB connection, uh, an ambient transaction, and then a, a SQL statement as a string. And uh, uh, I don't know whether I'm jumping around or not. No, but, it's okay. Okay, well, this this is where link. Um, this is this is the big difference. This is where Link really comes in to save the day, mm. because I'm sure Rocky Rocky Latka, he would just frown upon this thing. I am taking SQL strings. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Richard Campbell would too, because he just he's a SQL server guy. I'm taking SQL strings in many cases. Um, I'm not putting them in my in my in the classes with the static helpers, but but for the for the specific the domain specific code. Uh, in the A in the in the .NET 2.0 frame uh, time time frame, mm-hmm. I would take a SQL string and save it as a resource, I compile it in the assembly, and treat it sort of like a weird stored procedure that stays outside of the SQL Server. Even though I know in the the newer versions of SQL Server, you can you can compile in a, in a, in assembly. From going from 2005 forward, mm. you can compile in, a, in, in assembly and have it live inside the database. I right. still prefer to use these compiled assemblies that that live outside the, the database, because in some legacy situations in the in the brownfield in the enterprise, you can mm. actually um, use the same procedure to connect to a SQL 2000 database. Mm. So, in order for the principle of reuse. I can use the same sort of weird uh, disk-based stored 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 procedure, mm. and uh, and use it on a SQL 2000 as well as a SQL 2005. You're right. I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm not. You know, it's funny. I was thinking I have done exactly the same thing for almost exactly the same reason, which was we were I was a contractor on an application that had to run against. Uh, it was a shrink wrap app, SQL, Oracle, DB2. And containing the queries in resource files was a great way to provide that portability. Although yeah. I would say included in that process was sometimes those resource files contain references to stored procedures, and we had to write the stored procedures on all three different databases. But we ran into the issue where certain kinds of stored procedures cannot be written on certain databases, and, you know, making those things compatible was tough. One of the things I see in your, in your code here um, is uh, that's kind of nice is, is how you wrap up returning an XPath document. Yes, and that's where 
the legacy of Don Box. I know Don Box is he's doing this M stuff now. He he finally <laughs> come out. He comes out of his mountain fortress in the Himalayas. <laughs> you know, he's dressed like that guy uh, from uh, Mist. You know, the father in Mist. He kind of looks like a Yeti, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know. He he's come out, but but back in the day, the last one of the last things he did in the .NET era before he vanished uh, was he talked about the XPath document. Mm-hmm. And there's a there used to be a video back when it when it was called MSDN TV. Yeah, there was a video that came out. Where he him and Chris Anderson introduced the XPath document, and that thing I use that thing. Uh, all the time. So that's, yeah. that's the other thing I, I use. So in this, for, for example, the system.data.com thing I'm talking about, these static helpers that, I, that, I, that I've written, uh, I have one that re- returns scalars. So under common scalar, I have a, a method that returns a string. Hmm. But you can, you can um, write a SQL statement in SQL Server two, 2005 that returns, now how do I describe this? This is going to be a tough one here. Um, you can return a, an XML string from any length because there's a there's a Richard can help me with this. There's As a XML, limit. I think, is the clause right? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a limit of the length of string that can be returned when you're not using this particular. Okay, all right. So I'm going to read this out and and maybe um, Richard can translate this into, in, into English. Okay. Uh, the first line is declare. XML variable as XML. Right. Then you set XML to a select statement with four XML auto elements root. Right. So you're basically getting a query back that structures itself into into XML. And and it is limited to, depending on the version of, of, of SQL, either 4K or 8K. It's small. Yeah, but then you, you turn around, the, your last statement is select that variable XML. Right, so now you're passing that out. Yes, you can can, can return a string of any length now. Right. So I have a static helper in my in my helper class that that is that's called get string and all all it accepts is a DB connection, a a SQL statement, and um, a Boolean that says return XML for empty set because when you're expecting XML back you you might want to return XML, uh, or you might blow blow the thing up, or you know, or throw throw in exception. Right. So with that little tiny little thing, you can now um, pull XML out of the of the database with very little effort. And that's again, I, I can see a lot of controversy. A lot of people saying, "Oh, that's kind of you know, it's kind of risky." But I treat the XPath document and XML in general as sort of a variant. From the Visual Basic six days, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't. I'm not p- particularly concerned about XML sets having an, an associated schema uh, because I would use XPath assertions to sort of get a, sort of a schematron-like view on the data. You know, as long as I see this element and this element and this element, then I'm pretty sure that this XML is of the type that I'm looking for. What is a schematron anyway? Yeah, schema, schematron. Okay, now schema XSD has limits, meaning you can't use uh, a, a schema, an XML schema, to 
um, define relationships among elements. So, so you can't say when orders are three and when customers are two, then it then this type is valid. Oh, so rules. Yeah, that's right. So you have to have these these rules attached to to that. And um, I use XPath assertions to enforce these these rules. Now, Rocky Latka, based on my understanding of of the CSLA framework, that he would put all the trust in native .NET objects, and the .NET object would contain all of its rule rule in enforcing stuff. Whereas I, I I go in this primitive other way where I have the data the data objects are as dumb as possible, mm-hmm. and you're attaching a thin layer of, of of validation somewhere else, and this separation can be un, un, uncomfortable to a uh, architect because they, they they may want to contain everything with the object itself and have and have the object as smart as possible. Where I'm saying no, 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 you know, let's just um, have a sort of a thin layer of smartness, but we're going to do these generic things uh, first. I don't think I'm being clear with this, but I'm but I think the, the important point you're making here is you're not you get yourself to XML and you keep yourself there. You don't try and hop into different types and stuff to do your your type and schema enforcement. You're staying in XML and doing the enforcement at that level. Yeah, because I have. My chief weapon in this in this XML centric field is XSLT, and in the environment that I've I've been working in an environment for over eight years now, where there's where Java is the dominant um, technology, and .NET has to sort of survive. So everything I write has to be able to switch over to another platform. So I have to have this. I can't go too native. With, with .NET. I have to be ready to abandon anything at any time, which is extremely uncomfortable for most programmers, especially long-time .NET programmers who've worked in .NET shops. That is like, that's terrifying to be able to like, abandon uh, anything and everything you know, as much as possible. But with XSLT and with an XML-centric approach, I, I, I'm more comfortable with, with that. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. You probably know that about 50% of the code in most enterprise applications is dedicated to data access, and about 90% of the bugs and performance bottlenecks come from this code, too. That's why developers rely on Object Relational Mapping Tools, or ORM for short, like the Telerik Open Access ORM. It can help you build a persistent data layer in no time, and squeeze out every bit of performance possible. Do you prefer to start from your database tables or from your classes? No problem. Telerik Open Access supports both forward and reverse mapping for six databases. Of course, you can enjoy link support, full Visual Studio integration, and advanced caching. With very little help from you, Telerik Open Access can quickly generate code as good as yours, minus the bugs. Tempted? Curious? Check it out today and download the free Open Access Express Edition at www.telerik.com. Now, you must love Link to XML. Have you dabbled with the uh, XML literals in VBNet? Um, no, I use C Sharp most of the time, and that, again, comes from legacy issues because uh, I'm sure 
even you would agree, Carl, that there was a time when the background compilation for large projects was a little bit uh, noticeable. Yeah, but that was version one. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> version one. They fixed that at 1.1. 1. 1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I'll look at it again. But, um, I, you know, I do like the XML literals. Uh, you know, I've, I've messed around with them, but... Um, you know, right now I'm, I'm getting them off disk. You know, very rarely do I use XML to uh, translate uh, directly into an, an object. In fact, in my in my little framework here, I have a. Because um, I, I know someone might ask, well, why don't you use some sort of XML to object thing? Uh, let's see, where is this? Or what about just link to XML in general? Okay, yeah, link to XML. Um, that's a see. Now here's a here's a, another strange thing about legacy. I found this out the hard way. I'm sure this is common knowledge to most of your listeners, but I found this out the hard way. Um, uh, Windows Server 2000 stops at .NET 2. You cannot use anything newer than .NET 2 on Windows Server 2000. Really. Yeah, so when you're in an environment that has these legacy issues again, hmm. and you have, you've got this Windows 2000 server, and this Windows 2000 server happens to be running ASP.NET, hmm. and, you, and you're building on, on your dev machine, you're in Windows, you're in .NET 3.5, you're on a Windows 2003 virtual machine, which I, which I use every day. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just plodding along in, in link, and just, just, everything's going great. And you realize that when the time comes to deploy, you find out because there's so many. You know, I, I'm I'm in a healthcare yeah. environment, so there's servers all over the place. And then you once you find out, ah, that explains why you haven't upgraded. <laughs> That's why I was going to ask use, that question. I use both. I use both. I use both. So I, I use I use link to XML to actually. I haven't I haven't released this this code yet, but I use link to XML to validate to to. to See, I, I can use link assertions instead of XPath assertions. Mm-hmm. Right. So, in an almost one line of code, even though it's a very long line of code, in one line of link, I can do what takes two or three lines in in the in the .NET 2.0 world. Yeah. So instead of XPath assertions, I use link assertions and then assign values to the native types by hand. Now that is, that may seem strange. Why would I? Do that. Why? Why would I prefer to hydrate my native .NET types by hand when I know there's a serial, what's it what's it called serialization? Mm-hmm. You know, but for me, I don't have um, you know thirty or forty tables in a database. I have uh, for the most part I have very simple types. Mm. So uh, for, for for example, the the schema that I've been using for years. Um, for a, a read-only website, has three entities. It's just segment, document, and fragment. Yeah. So when I just have those three, why should I bother? You know, um, you know, writing all this code. And a lot, of, a lot of times, the code that I use also is schema-based. So I mean, I have to write a schema first, and you know, so I just. Uh, do that by by hand, with the expectation I'm going to do it by hand once and never again. Yeah, and and also on top of that, now now that we're talking about this stuff, 
test-driven development. Yeah. Um, I know I've, I've heard on previous shows your your opinion. You're not that enthused about it. And oh, no, am, no. Don't don't take my opinion. It's, <laughs> you want to know the opinions of our guests, not me. I'm not an authority on test-driven development. I don't even use, you don't even write code anymore, so. Well, Except for my own um, code, of course. But yeah, well, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really get into that uh, myself either. I like a lot of um, well-written error messages. Yeah, I, I'll use that first before I get into in, into TDD. TDD to me is, is more is, is almost like Java. I'm, I know I'm, I've written stuff in Java, so I'm not trying to be insulting. But in many cases, to management, to non-technical management, Java mm-hmm. is a employee control tool. It's a someone's like a lawyer in case. <laughs> you know. So um T T D D has that lawyerly, you know, litigious Okay. Yeah. Sort of feel for Sucking it. the but, joy out of programming since two thousand and four, whatever it was, right? Yeah, yeah, but see when when you're when you're a consultant and you have maybe uh, let's say you have a, a million dollar bond uh that you know, it's protecting your company from being sued. Yeah, uh, you want you want to have a lot of verifiers in place, a lot of third party ways to verify that right. your code is valid. Right. So I can understand in that context, TDD is very important. Or when you're not you're in a hostile work environment and your managers all see you as a cost and they're trying to think of ways to get get rid of you. Um, and you know, you might try to. Try to protect yourself by saying, you know, none of my tests fail. Um, mm. You should keep me. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the guy that, that has tests that does not fail. Yeah. But but that's a lot of scaffolding in, in, for, for for me in many cases. But yeah. uh, but I'm, I'm not saying never use it. I'm just saying, in many cases, having a well written error message. And this this is hard because you know we all know that a lot of developers hate documentation. Mm. And writing an error message is just like that too. It's in that same context of documentation yeah. and um, saying the right thing. Um, you know, I have, an, I have an anthropomorphic view toward uh, my, my programs. You know, they're like little, little people. Little children, yeah. yeah. And so they have, to, they have to be able to speak up for themselves <laughs> and defend themselves <laughs> when I'm not there. Yo! <laughs> yeah. Hey, what about I think, this? I think it's more of the why are all my children brain damaged? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> So my thoughts here, just to clarify on on test driven development, I think it's amazing. I do. I, I and especially in in large scale systems where you got lots of developers and lots of stuff going on, lots of changes, lots of refactoring, it absolutely makes a lot of sense for the kind of stuff that I write, which is you know tends to be smaller smaller tools and utilities to do something. It's 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 overkill, but you know for for some for larger applications and for you know business applications, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's that's just my take on it. Yeah, I'm so, going to pull up some link to XML code here, and uh, while you're doing that, let me ask you about clean XHTML. Oh yeah, that opens a whole different. Oh yeah, that so, is. Uh, so this uh, is a little tool yeah. that you wrote to clean up uh, XHTML in yes, Word, yes. right? Yeah, and this yeah this this was a wonderful weird journey because I come from the world of desktop publishing. You know, I started off um, on, uh, I had a deck rainbow 100. I actually won it in a poetry contest. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, oh, uh, man. You know, he, when was the last he, time any .NET Rocks guest ever said, "I want a deck in a poetry contest"? <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, the first. Yeah, you know, years and years ago, the NAACP had this. Uh, they, well, they still have this this contest that goes on to, to this day. It's called the Academic, Cultural, Technological, Scientific Olympics. Whew. It's called oh. AXO for 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 short. And uh, I entered my poetry. I did a poem about South Africa. Uh, when I was about 18, and uh, I, I, I won um, the national competition, wow. and uh, Honeywell was, was there, and uh, they were, and Deck was there, and Deck gave me a, a, a computer, it actually showed up to, to my dorm room in, in Santa Barbara, and, uh, and one side joke that, it's funny to me now, but it wasn't then, um, I sat for about six hours trying to get the cursors to show color. Because you can you can set up a cursor, you know, in the in the because you know it, it ran on CPM and uh, DOS, so you could actually choose between CPM and DOS. Um, so you can actually conf- configure your command prompt to have colors. It took me six hours to figure out that my my monitor was a green phosphorus monitor. <laughs> <laughs> How come the one I was setting to it's green? Why doesn't this work? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I had a year like that once. Oh, yeah, man. yeah. So I'll never forget. Clearly, I've never forgotten. It's been over 20 years. I've never forgotten the, the, the hurt. The hurt, see, yeah. that's what, see, it's very emotional and painful for a lot of <laughs> people starting out in tech. They go to, they, you know, and for me, the pain, I just don't forget the pain, and I try to, I try to defend myself. I'm a very defensive programmer. Yeah, you know, a lot of programmers have, uh, you know, especially the rock star thing. You know, they 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 are not questioned. Yeah, the ego you know? gets in the way. When in fact, um, you know, being a good programmer means having a very flexible ego. Yes, I yes. think. Yeah, so I, I I've always had to defend myself because my ego was just not going to, you know, it just wasn't going to um, sway these these these, these uh, you know the people that, I, that I've been working for. So. Um, I always had to have something that actually worked, and uh, there's no way they're going to let me stay in the in the enterprise uh, because I'm, uh, you know, so loving. So uh, I started off um, writing. Uh, yeah, I, I used um, a PDP. I used my modem with my that came with my deck rainbow to connect to the campus server, and they had a program on there called Tech. Our, our latex. Um, I, think, I think it's Knuth. Donald Knuth has a book on, on latex. It is a uh, program that allows you to, to convert markup, essentially, into a document. And I got into this obsessive thing of wanting my notes to look exactly like the, the textbook. <laughs> and what, was, what year was this? It was, um, I graduated in 86. So it was, I mean, I, gra- I entered in 86 and I graduated in 91. So it was, okay. it was before the internet as we know it. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, so I was always into um, writing code for uh, um, literary reasons, right. even, even scientific stuff. So I had no problem writing error, error messages of great detail. I mean, not taking up a whole lot of space. I mean, you don't click a dialogue box it doesn't pop up with, you know, it was the best of times, with the worst of times. No, yeah. it wasn't. It's not that 
you know. But what a great error message. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best of times. You're using my software. It's the worst of time. I crashed. These are, these are sutra-like error, error messages that are meant to speak the, speak the language of the human in the business. Richard, what's your thing about error messages? There's only three? There is only three error messages. I learned that from my old TRS-80. What? How? And sorry. <laughs> Yes, yes. And in fact, you know, I mean, a classic one that I love to talk about is a lot of times a beginner programmer will write a procedure and at the end it'll say, procedure ended successfully. Yeah. And so say you're working for a finance company that puts out mortgage-backed securities and these are New York, East Coast, hoagie-eating, you know, (laughs) ruffians. I mean, guys that are used to ripping out the keyboard on the trading desk and say, fire everybody in the, in the department because this thing is not working. You know, my, my Bloomberg information is not coming in right now. Uh. Fire, fire the whole IT. I don't care, good or bad, innocent. You know, so with those guys, you cannot have, uh, uh, when, you, when your code is doing something wrong, or even when it's not your fault, yeah. you can't have your code saying, I completed successfully. All you say is program ended or the thing stopped, you know. <laughs> Do not say anything about success. Do not use that that word. Yeah. You know, just say your program <laughs> has completed. <clears throat> so writing is very important to those those people. The you know, these are things that end up in uh in uh you know, when when the company's being sued or when there's some sort of a official tri- tribunal of some kind this language comes comes back to haunt you. Mm. And a lot of programmers assume, well, nobody cares. This is just me talking to me. You know, even on Facebook, as much as I dig Facebook, Facebook error messages right now, they come back with messages that are designed for the engineer. Mm. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, trying to de- de- debug Facebook, you know. Right. <laughs> why like why would they tell me this stuff? You know, just say... Something. Oops. You know, I, I, I like what uh, I think it's uh, Flickr. You know, Flickr might say, "Oops, sorry." Yeah. Or, no. Sorry. So clean XHTML. Yes. Okay. So yes. So um, because I come from this desktop publishing background, you know, there was a time that you know we before the CD-ROM there was desktop publishing. Um. So I have a literary. Uh, publishing workflow-centric view of data inside of a Word document. The problem of turning prose data into something that could be used on the web is not a trivial problem. They have a podcast that comes on IT Conversations um, uh, called Stack Overflow, uh, and they talk about this thing that they use on their site called Markdown, which is yet uh, another way to attempt to capture um, HTML-like data or markup pros, marked up pros. You can mark up pros with uh, in rich text format, um, PostScript. You can use uh, Wiki, the Wiki markups. So clearly, this is the reason why this is not a raging, fiery issue among programmers and developers and, and tech people is because most of them are not writers. And th- th- this is why I really dig Douglas Crockford so much because he's one of the finest writers I've, I've ever read. I mean, I haven't read the 
you know, that classic Carnegie and Ritchie book. Yeah. I, I haven't read all that stuff, you know, in, in, to, the, to, to the point where I'm digging it. But uh, um, JavaScript, The Good Parts by uh, Douglas Crockford. That is sutra language. Because, I mean, we, when, when, when we hear the word sutra, we think of Kama Sutra, we might think of sex. But the word sutra is you're finding the exact words to say something. You know, you're finding the most efficient and exact words to, to say something. So um, the shining example of that right now in the world of tech is, is, is Douglas Crockford from, uh, from Yahoo. I think he came on um, uh, Channel 9 once to talk about uh, jQuery or something like, like that, or ASP.NET, MVC. But, um, so anyway, he's just, he's just the bomb. So um, what, I wanted, what I wanted to be able to do with clean X, XHTML was essentially write inside a word processor and then be able to highlight a paragraph. And this is very important. This is a very subtle part. I want to be able to highlight a paragraph in that document and route it to anywhere. Yeah. And the, in my first format to route in is XHTML. Right. And the reason why I use XHTML is because it's a, it's a data type now. It's XML. And a lot of programmers, again, with their angle bracket fears, you know, they'll say, why bother? Why just make it HTML and call it, and call it a day? Mm-hmm. But now that it's data, it can do much, much more, much, much more flexible than just having it in some sort of uh, text format right. or on an unstructured, badly formed form. You know, form. So, um, <clears throat> so that's a, and that's why the program, and I tried to sell the, the program, and, you know, you've, that's a very, very limited art, uh, audience. First, you have to find uh, a set of customers that like to use the Microsoft Word processor, and they like to use the web. So I, I, got, I got into this, ad, this adventure. I can't call it a dialogue. I'll call it an adventure with Brian Jones of the uh, office team. If this was in maybe 2005, 2006, maybe. I'm, I can't get my gears right. Uh, I, I would have to look at my blog, which is why it's there. But I, I talked to Brian Jones about this, and, uh, or not talked to him about, about this. And I realized this is not really a concern with, with Microsoft. I mean, you could search the MSDN website through, through Google or through their search, just type in XHTML and see how, how much nothing comes, how very few items come yeah. up. Yeah. But this issue is alive and, and, and well. Um, whatever they, they did for Hotmail uh, involves trying to deal with this problem. Whatever they've done in InfoPath, when they have the rich text uh, con- control in InfoPath, that problem is there. But they don't seem to be solving the problem. Whenever they convert to HTML or XHTML in the Office products, their design goal was to preserve the fidelity of the document. Sure. What, I, not, what, what, yeah, what I'm trying to yeah. do is get a subset of the document. And in the right format. Well, yeah. we're, I'm up, I would say up until recently, you know, the XML has been an afterthought in Office. But, you know, with the, with the new formats, of course, in Office, um, yeah, what are we up to now, 2007? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where where everything is in XML, how how does that look to you? 
Well, the catchy well, that was that. There's something um, going along uh, side of the, the the 2007 time frame. It is called the uh, the ooh, Open XML SDK. Right. Um, when it first came out, their their priority was to treat larger sets of XML. Getting down to the subparagraph level was not their priority. Yeah. So, they're, so, so they're more concerned about the XML of footnotes, the XML of annotations to the document, the XML of properties of mm. a document, mm. um, the XML of custom XML. And this is where I think Microsoft really shines. And this is, a, this is, this is an overlooked feature, uh, in, in, especially in the world of, in the mainstream world of .NET. You can insert custom XML inside of a Word document, show and hide it. So you could, uh, for example, for my blog post, I use custom XML based on the schema for, for clean XHTML to, in, to insert XML for, say, Amazon.com product links. We um, should also just mention that clean XHTML is what you think it is. It cleans up the, uh, the XHTML that Word produces. Is that right? Well, it, no, it exports uh, a subset of XHTML based on Word uh, ML. So, it, so you could say that it takes Word, Word ML and, and exports it as clean XHTML. Ah, okay. So, uh, and it uses the Word ML from the, from the pre-2007 time, time frame. And the, the greatest thing Brian Jones told me was that they were going to preserve that legacy XML format. Uh, that was very, very important because the style sheet that I used, I think it's maybe a thousand lines of XSLT to to do this little simple thing. Yeah, I think you're the only consumer of XSLT left in the world, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most because I, I fell in love with it in the '90s, but I got over it. Ah, uh, well, see, the ultimate power of XSLT is server. You are server neutral. Server neutral. So my only. Uh, my major de- development task in terms of putting together a generic set of tools for, for my specific needs is to produce on each server, whether it's a Linux, uh, you know, Apache on a LAMP stack server which with PHP or, or an ASP.NET server, my only task is to put together a pipeline, a wrapper around an, XH, an XSLT-based pipeline. So... Um, for the mainstream .NET uh, programmer, the, um, con- the, the word data binding and control creation, that's where XSLT comes in. So as long as they are completely happy with investing hours and hours and hours of time in a proprietary non-XML format, w- WPF changes the, the, the game, but I'm talking about um, you know, the ASP, the early ASP.NET stuff, and, you know, before MVC and anything Windows Forms. Yeah. As, as long as you're completely satisfied with uh, data binding and control creation on the Microsoft platform, you are not threatened with the possibility that you have to move all of that to another, another environment. Uh, then XSLT is ridiculous and you don't need it. So are you uh, waiting with bated breath for the MVC framework? Uh, 
Well, yes and and no, because I, I know even when it comes out, it has to be, it has to penetrate the enterprise. And the more conservative the enterprise, and mine is very conservative because lives are, are, are at stake. It's sure. healthcare, so sure. it'll take them quite some time to allow it to, to, to penetrate. But the important news for me is that, you know, I, I kind of I have this imaginary relationship with Microsoft. <laughs> they, in, in time and time again, they have shown me that they are thinking of what I need. Yeah. So I'll... I'll develop something in, in isolation, and then they'll come out and do something similar with, with 30,000 em, em, employees. Right, yeah. So, you know, at least the, the message is, is clear that what I'm thinking about is not utterly and totally crazy. Mm-hmm. So what the first thing that I get from ASP.NET NBC is a validation of the concept of the decoupling of the client from the server, a complete separation of concerns, mm-hmm such that the server is, you can, you can trim it down to, to that, to the server is just simply emitting either JSON or XML messages. <laughs> I, I, use, I use XML as, as my primary data format because I want to um, have data binding and control creation occur at the same time. Whereas somebody who you know, a, a, a team that puts together something like Gmail, for example, they would take a little JSON message because they have, you know, huge amounts of traffic. So, so they want their um, messages to be as small as possible. So they'll, they'll, they'll take a little JSON message and then have this heavy lifting JavaScript build um, widgets and, you know, do the data binding and control creation in JavaScript. For, for me, that's not as attractive because there aren't that much, you know, I don't have a need, I don't, I don't have millions and millions of people hitting my site. Right. Any site that I'm, I make, it, it'll be tens of thousands, uh, and, you know, for, for, for the most part. So um, I'll send these much larger XHTML fragments to the client and just inject them using inner HTML. That's, that's all I do. Very primal, very simple, just injection. Um, but it's still restful in that what comes back are other. I can. Um, I, I use UI. I use the, the YUI framework from uh, from from Yahoo. Uh, so once the, in many cases, a fragment of XHTML will come back with data and and widgets in it, but it has to be rescanned in order to assign new events to it. So you can you can do this in perpetuity where you you click on something that was generated from the server as a fragment. It goes back to the server with another command and it comes back and new commands are attached to this new set and you click on something in a new set and it goes back to the so this goes on and on and on. It's it's very generic and the the the, the restfulness is in there in that there's uh you know you I'm transferring state with each with, with each new message. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, 
a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. So I don't want to let you go before um, before talking about this one of your last uh, points, uh, one of your show notes points, which is why you think declarative programming is an African thing and imperative programming is an imperial thing. I, I can't wait to hear this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, well. Um, Im- imperative programming is what it says it is. You know, the word imperative has the same seed in it, the same, uh, I can't think of the... Yeah, the root. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same root as the word imperial, which is simply, I'm going to tell this thing what I want it to do, yes. and it's going to do what I want it to do. I am the king, you are my subjects. Yes, you do yes, as I say. That's, yeah. that's an imperative way of thinking, and they, it is not just an application for this particular uh, programming task. It is an entire way of life. There's right. a lot of central control. That's why we have Google now. There's a lot of uh, impulse, a lot of cultural baggage that says we must have central control. Why can't we have anything else but central control? Right. And it's also the goal of business is to dominate the market, right? Yeah, but the, but the problem with central con- control is a, is a problem that Microsoft has been having for many years where they cannot respond fast enough. Windows Vista is, to me a classic, colossal example of central control gone bad. Um, a lot of uh, young guys out there on these podcasts, they'll ask the question like, What's, what was what Microsoft doing? What was Microsoft doing? Microsoft has a lot of imperial tasks to complete in the background. They have to translate things into many, 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 many different languages. Um, that was a that was a huge thing. Just that a, a, a alone, and that's that's the byproduct of of domination, where you have to support all these different markets through one. Um, right. You have you know, to think of every scenario, every possible scenario, and and cover it in detail. Every every signal flow, every possible path of execution. Right. Yes. Yeah. And that and that from a from a poetic point of view, that is literally being godlike. Yeah. You know, it is omnipotence. I'm going to know right. what you're going to think. And the, the, the danger of trying to predict uh, what someone is going to think is that the, the temptation to cheat is overwhelming. Well, and how about, just in, how about just incompetence, like getting it wrong? No, I wasn't thinking that. Oh, this isn't my priority list. You know, that's yours or, or somebody else's. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and one, one of the ways to, to, to cheat is to literally limit the imaginations of the people you're trying to out get out out think and out guess, so you is that what religion off. is? Oh, 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 where are you going? Oh, oh. ouch! But but I, I I challenge any of the any of the uh, anthropologists or uh, cultural his, historians in the in, in the audience to locate a religion without an empire. Yeah, no, There's no, I've, and you know I'm not the first person to say that. I mean that's. Yeah, I think yeah, that was a, Karl Marx, a, wasn't it? The religion is the opiate of the masses, I think. Yeah, yeah, there was there was there was a correlation between religion and empire. Even yeah. you know, so um, what you what you do what you do in declaration is simply um, treat the first thing you do is is anthropomorphize things, right? Which, which is where I think object oriented programming came came from. So you treat these things like 
the way B.B. King treats his guitar. That's my, even though it, it clearly looks like he's in complete control of Lucille. That's right. You know, um, he treats it like it's a separate entity yeah. that has its own um, uh, independent self. Well, you know, you just listen to guys who are programming together, and they're talking together and trying to understand stuff. And you hear them anthropomize their code all the time. All yeah. right, so this guy's hanging out there, and, exactly. and then the other guy comes and calls an interrupt, and he says, hey, I got some stuff over here you want to check. And that guy says, okay, I got that. You know, this is, what they, this is the way we talk about our code. Yeah, so the, the, the talking drum was the first mobile phone. Awesome. True. The talking drum was the first mobile phone. It used the sound waves to transmit signals. And, you know, I'm sure you would ask the guy hitting the drum, you know, what's this? He said he would probably speak about his drum like it's this other person that just talks, that does these things. And that's why these declarations are an African thing. You just, you, you simply um, say what you intend to happen, hand it over to the anthropomorphized thing, and it does. You don't know what it's doing, but it'll, it'll eventually do it. That's very cool. Well, it's explanatory. You're, you're really explaining your intent rather yeah. than saying, I want you to do this, saying, I'm trying to get here. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so, and uh, also, by the, by the way, another African thing is metadata. Um, James Brown, for example, hmm. he is conducting the song while the song is going on. Yeah. You can hear Take him. Take it to the bridge. The studio, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he'll be dancing. He's dancing to the song. That's right. <laughs> directing the song and in the song at the same time. One more! <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. So this is your concept of metadata right there. He's, he's, you know, he's doing it all at the same time, and that's, that's the beauty. Yep. That's, that's just the beauty of the whole thing. It's, it's, you know, and this is not to say that this does not happen in the European context. There's a lot of, uh, you know, pre-Roman stuff that went along. And this, this, this is why Tolkien is so dear to so many people. Mm. You know, Tolkien yeah. um, wanted to take uh, the people he grew up with, uh, especially during World War I, a very Im imperial time, mm -hmm. he wanted to take them to a, a place that was before Rome mm. and bring them back to the Shire and remember those, those wonderful days mm. before central control. Well, and it's the classic hero story played out over and over and over again. You know, the Tolkien, you know, the, the power of, to the people, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, overthrow it, the you know, it's, uh, you know, um, it really shocked me that uh, I, I, uh, on, on KenteSpace.com, I, I found this article that I put up on KenteSpace. Um, I mean, I found this article that I put up on KenteSpace.com um, that uh, talks about the number of languages in, 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 in Nigeria, just in that region of Nigeria, like 390 different languages. Wow. So that is, of course, they have to use English as the central control language mm. because they have no choice. They, they literally have no choice because of their heritage mm. of what you could call natural anarchism. Mm. I mean, we're not talking about uh, Sid Vicious anarchism. You no, know? no, no, just the way things work out. Yeah, yeah, you know, family planning anarchism. I mean, these small groups, um, you know, eventually came up with their uh, separate separate languages. So, you know, 
just from the language barrier alone, central control becomes impossible unless you have to, unless you uh, put on top of it sort of a, a weird abstraction layer. Uh, in the case of, of Nigeria, it's the, it's the English language. And it's also very interesting that the whole declarative model has, has uh, flourished in a time where, you know, old, um, old behemoths of technology are breaking down and, and more, more openness on the web, more, more open source projects, not only open source projects, but open specs and a lot of people across different technologies working together. Uh, it is interesting. That, that's yeah, and, a yeah, very interesting one, take. Yeah, one thing that really helps, uh, too, we can't leave out functional programming. Yeah. That's, that's going to really, really help because it controls. The first thing a person should know about functional programming is that it controls complexity. Uh, I believe is uh, Beckman, Brian Beckman, on uh, on Channel Nine. He has a uh, several. He he, dis- he discussed this issue of functional programming several times. I think it's, uh, one of his titles was uh, uh, "Don't Fear the Monads" or something like like that. <laughs> but uh, more cowbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he really made it plain for me. I mean, he simply, you know. One of the things that he emphatically stressed is that functional program controls complexity. So a beginning d- developer or even an experienced d- developer on some legacy stuff may think, why on earth would I need this functional programming crap? But for the, for the person who knows that their system is getting toxically complex and refuses to accept complexity for complexity's sake as their job, which I do not, I, I do not accept a complex system just because it's com- complex as something uh, that's part of my job. You know, yeah. It should not have to. I, I, you know, for, for me, it's almost instinctive that these things should not be this toxically complex. Mm. And here comes Brian Beckman validating me, mm. saying, yes, that's what functional programming is for. Um, what, what we call a method in OOP, uh, in functional programming, is a method, is a function that always returns the same value every mm-hmm. single time. Right. That, that allows you to compose them without having problems with state, without having state-space explosion. Right. And, um, and it is a way of giving up your traditional programming control. I mean, you know, you don't, you're not controlling everything the way... You, you don't know what the outcome will be when you start. You know, you might go, it, it might branch off in a way and uh, recurse in a way that you didn't intend based on the data. Yeah, so 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 now, um, you know, way way back back in the in the day when when Unix and Linux were were really sexy and new, um, uh, a programmer from the, from those classical linear programming days looked in, in horror at the Java people and the .NET people. Like you know, they have no control now. They they're not they're not writing the entire system. Well, the next level is we're going to look at the functional programmers with horror now. Because there'll, there'll be a functional programmer whose first job it is to write one function. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. That's all they have to do: write one function. The do everything function. <laughs> no, no, no! It'll be one function, but there'll be ten thousand other programmers doing one function. Right, everybody too. gets one function. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like this is horrible. Yeah. Uh, can't we? Can't we just see a couple of methods? Or a couple of things inter- interact. No, you can't. No, you can't. You only have one function. 
and you, it'll probably be on, on something like uh, Me- Mechanical Turk, you know. <laughs> you know for, for seven cents or seven dollars, you can, you can write one function for this huge project that we're, that we're doing, and that's it. I got something for you. I was, years ago, I was watching um, The Power of Myth with Joseph Campbell, which was a series on PBS where Bill Moyers interviewed the man who wrote a book that inspired George Lucas to write Star Wars. Uh, the book was A Hero with a Thousand Faces, and he was uh, he, his life was all about comparative mythology. And he compared uh, stories and art um, and architecture and everything about culture and, and religion all around the world uh, and found common themes that evolved at different times simultaneously in all of these different cultures. And um, so, so comparing stories, comparing stories. And and how they and how they work? Yeah, the, the the story is the oldest data storage container. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it is no accident that storage and story uh, have a another mm, uh, root. root, another common root. So, so he so was talking storage. about the computer, mm-hmm. and he he said, and this was around 1980 something. So you know, like it was the 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 PC XT, maybe the AT. And he says, I just have this computer. He says, you thought it, and I, f- I found out that the computer is actually an Old Testament God. It has no mercy, you know. <laughs> it has lots of rules and no mercy. But he said, <laughs> he said that, you know, I can think, of, you think of software as uh, somebody writes a piece of software to do something. Let's just say it's to balance your checkbook, right? And there's software A and software B and software C. And using all three of these different pieces of software will balance your checkbook. They're all true and they all work. But the signal path that they take to get to that result is going to be widely different. Their story is going to be different. Their, um, you know, their methodology is going to be different. The way that the programmer expressed the, to this program to do its thing is going to be different. So you compared those two to religions, and you could compare them here to technologies. You could compare them. Some technologies may arrive at the solution faster than other technologies. Some might be easier and more pleasant to work with. But at the end of the day, you know, all are true. Yeah, but the problem is, though, uh, the, the the need for central control cannot be underestimated. Yeah. As Darth Vader says, do not underestimate the power <laughs> of the dark side. The dark side. So you know it is. <laughs> you know it is a. Uh, you know, the the innocent little question is how can I predict earnings? Mm. That is the innocent. It seems so innocent and harmless. How can I predict earnings for my shareholders? Mm. And one of the great ways to predict earnings is to say, put a machine on kidneys that have, you have to pay a bill or your kidneys stop working. You know, it's it's. Mm. You know, it, it's an earnings. It, it earns. It's an earnings story that uh, the shareholders would just love, until of course they themselves have these kidney things on. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Got to so pull the plug on your dialysis now. Yeah. So um, uh, there was a um, this this issue came about with um, uh, he's from Canada. He's a guy from Vancouver. And he is an early proponent of rest. And I'm struggling to remember his name. I sent you his name in my show notes. Um, yeah, I know who you're talking about. That's um, 
uh, Paul Prescott. Yes, 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 yes. Now, the reason why we have not heard of Paul Prescott for the most part is because his his work was done well before .NET really took off and Flickr took off and and all that, all this stuff. He was and, and on, on top of that, he was involved with the W3C. And I've heard time and time again on many podcasts about how much uh, one developer or another does not like these standards bodies because they're too slow. Um, they slow things down. In many cases, they fight amongst themselves with with red tape and, and you know. He really showed. I mean, the reason he really showed in the story in his, in his telling of the story of soap and and rest. Um, he made it clear to me that soap was viewed by people who are beholden to shareholders as property of the company. So why would you diminish your territory? Why would you give up soap? Because that's viewed as property. That's viewed as, 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 a, as, a, as a proprietary expression of a particular company, hmm. whereas REST does not do that. But when Flickr came out and when... Uh, other restful sites came out um, and got hugely popular, and all the money started flowing, all the uh, the venture capital started flowing. Suddenly, that that notion of clinging on to your property via soap got less and less sexy. Yeah. So that's you know, um, so in many cases, a company can think they are losing forever their ability to make money or their their ability their ability to to uh, to sustain themselves with some sort of economic system. Uh, in many cases, giving that up makes them even richer. Now, I'm not sure what you mean by um, proprietary nature of soap. I mean, I know it, that, it, that it's proprietary and there's people that own, the, I guess, the, the copyright on it, but it's certainly free to use. And... Certainly, but, but, the, but the, 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 the tooling story, the tooling story for a soap is extremely proprietary. Isn't that just because of the complexity? It is an open protocol. Yes, but um, when you're in the in Visual Studio, uh, many .NET programmers uh, need Visual Studio in order to make a soap call. That's because it's complex, but it's nothing stopping them from writing their own, you know, complex as it is, their own, uh, you know, what, what do we call those things? Little proxy soap services. Soap envelopes? Little pro- soap proxies that do all the, what, the, what the proxy does. Well... Um, it's and compared to REST, uh, the beginning programmer can open Notepad and start writing something for REST, and have a much easier time than doing it in in the world of SOAP. And and remember, in in SOAP, you're you're calling a method, you're calling a um, a particular proprietary object on the other side. So it there so the, so that imperative cultural sense of command and control. Is there? You're, sim- you're simply sending a command through this nuisance called the internet, yeah, uh, to this other location, and with and with rest, you're saying no. The internet is my friend. It's not a problem. Yeah, I'm going to embrace this env- environment, this neutral environment, and that's just not culturally sound to to many companies. And it took it took them a very long time to. Paul Paul Prescott can explain it better than than I can. Um, okay. You should have this guy on this on this show. He can, you know, he's a he's a Canadian, Richard. He's a Canadian. Yeah, how bad could he how be? How bad can yes. he be? Yes. yes. <laughs> but you know, you came into this talking all this love about XML and and rest is in XML. 
Yes, I, I, w- I, I would use REST to make XML over HTTP calls. Yes, I would, I would do that. Um, um, my resources would be XML uh, in, the, in the REST con- context. So, the, so that would be my uh, number one resource. Well, we're just about out of time. Is there any other last-minute shout-outs or things that you want to say? Um, well, you know, you really should try to get Don Box or Chris Anderson. I don't, I don't know how hard they are to reach. Oh, we've talked to them both a couple of times for different things. Usually these days it's about product announcements. but Yeah, they're, they're so focused on Oslo these days. That's really all they're thinking about. Yeah, because I mean, you know, I, I really miss the way Don. You know, Don Bosch is one of the best speakers is, in the entire he? company. Yeah. You know. uh, and second, I have to send a shout out to um, the upgrade, the technical upgrade to Bill Gates, and that is Scott Guthrie. Scott Guthrie. I can't help but love Scott. Yeah. We love Scott too. I mean, uh, I'm sure he was behind ASP.NET MVC. Uh, 100%. As a matter of fact, um, we're going to have him on DNR TV doing a series on ASP.NET MVC when it comes oh, out. Oh, cool. Oh, yep. great, man. Yep. This is why I appreciate your work. I mean, you know, I, I listen to Leo Laporte now, but that's only because he's got these, these uh, Security Now guy. Yeah. It's a Gibson good show. Gibson takes it all the way back to assembly language. I mean, he, he takes you back to the time. I mean, you know, when I first started in computing, I was, I was in, in awe of a lot of people, and eventually I outgrow them, but not Steve Gibson. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. All right, Brian Wilhite, thank you very much. All righty. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a